Am I on? All right. Now am I? No? Hello? Okay. All right. It is, uh, uh, if you're like myself, uh, probably a little scatterbrained this morning, and yeah. Um, it's a joy to see you all here. May the Lord bless you, and let us pray to that end. Um, let me uh, just uh, make sure that I announce uh, several things to you, and I'm surely I'm probably forgetting something. Uh, but uh, today, after the service, uh, we are having a, sort of a churchwide uh, community, churchwide shower, a baby shower for Caleb and Molly uh, downstairs in the fellowship hall. We'd be, uh, be delighted to have you all join us uh, and to celebrate with them uh, free food, which is great, always great. Uh, so we've got that immediately following the service today. Um, also remember that we have our church picnic at the Elliott Boat Basin um, up in Elliott's Maine, and that is uh, Sunday, December the 27th. Of the, this, oh, my gosh. <sighs> Sunday this month, the 27th. Um, it's going to be one of those days. Um, yes. Anyways, moving on. Prayer, 28th, Monday, Dover, our house. Come pray. We'd love to see you there. Um, and then as far <clears throat> I'm, yes, I'm getting there. Oh, you are. I have information on this phone. I'm so sorry. We are running late. This is not typical for us. We're usually pretty good on time, and I'm usually more cohesive, uh, but not today. Um, baby Bendola Lorenzo Alexander was born uh, 6 a.m., 6.05 a.m. this morning, uh, so praise God for that. Um, and... Yes, uh, I'm sure they are exhausted uh, and excited, but we will rejoice with them and we'll pray for them later on. Uh, and then also in, in other news, and I'm sure probably all of you, if not most of you, have already heard uh, that Dwight, uh, Brother Dear Dwight Merrill passed away uh, on Friday evening. And so I do have some information. Now, this is so tentative information, so I, will, uh, I should know better tomorrow. Uh, and so once I have all the information, and I will send this out your way via Slack, uh, newsletter. Um, but for Dwight, uh, his, uh, for the calling hours will be this Friday be, uh, between 6 and 8 p.m. at Kent and Pelzer Funeral Home, 71 Exeter Road in Newmarket. So uh, we'll put that out again, or we'll send that out to you. Uh, if you are not receiving the newsletters, if you are not on Slack, then just let me know, and I can make sure I can text it to you or write it down for you. Um, and then uh, his memorial service will be at 10 a.m. this Saturday, August 19th, at, uh, at Be Free Evangelical Church in Barrington. So I don't have with me right now the exact address uh, to that church. So I, again, I will make sure you get that uh, ahead of time so you know exactly uh, where you're going. And then Monday the 21st uh, will be... Uh, uh, will be his final resting place will be in, in Jefferson, New Hampshire. I am not quite sure who is invited to that. Um, so I, again, I will, once I know all the information, then I'll make sure I get that to you as well later. Uh, we will pray for our sister Karen um, in this time. And so anyways, those are all the announcements I have. If you missed anything, just come back to me later after the service, and I will make sure that you have all this information. 
But all that being said, let us uh, go before the Lord and let us rejoice in Him. Let us be glad in Him. Today is the day that He has made, and it is good, and it is a good Sunday because we are together and we are worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us proclaim Him as we sing. Let us proclaim Him even as we lift up our prayers to the Father through Jesus Christ, and let us proclaim Him as we proclaim His Word and as we listen to His Word this morning. Uh, if you are here for the first time, we're glad that you're here. Welcome to Seacoast Community Church. Uh, we invite you to worship and praise with us. If you have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are also glad that you are here, and we pray that by the end of this service, you might come to know Him as your dear and precious Savior through faith in Him. So let us go before the Lord and let us worship. Amen, church. Let's, let's stand at this moment. I want to read God's word out of First Chronicles. <clears throat> the word of God says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Amen. Let's do just that this morning as a church together. Amen. Let's sing together. Up to the hill. Amen. Up to the hill of Calvary, my Savior went courageously, and there he bled and died for me, hallelujah, for the cross. And on that day the world was changed, a final perfect lamb was slain, let earth and heaven now proclaim hallelujah for the cross. Let's sing hallelujah for the war he fought, love has won, death has lost. Hallelujah for the souls he fought, hallelujah for the cross. What good I've done. What good I've done could never save my debt too great for deed to pay. But God, my Savior, made a way, hallelujah, for the cross. A slave to sin, my life was bound, but all my chains fell to the ground. This Jesus' blood came flowing down, hallelujah, for the cross. Let's sing together, hallelujah, for the war he fought, love has won, death has lost. Hallelujah, for the souls he fought, hallelujah, for the cross, hallelujah.
my final breath, I'll have no need to fear that rest. This hope will guide me into death. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah for the war he fought. Love has won. Death has lost. Hallelujah for the souls he fought. Hallelujah for the cross. Sing one more time. of our praise, Father. Amen.
believe. Yes, Lord. Justice. Justice, truth, and mercy. alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are still when striving cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of Christ I'll stand yes, Lord. in Christ alone who took on flesh Fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him. of the world by dark. 
darkness lay, then bursting forth this glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his We desire, Father, to worship you well, to give you the glory that you deserve. Oftentimes we fall short, but you, Lord, remain faithful. Father, thank you for the way that you sustain your church the way father that you feed us through your word lord give us a desire for your food and in your word father may you lead us to your feet wherever we are in whatever season we may be in lead us god to your feet that we may humbly come before your presence, understanding who we are in Christ. For it is in Christ in which we stand because of the cross. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your Son. May you lead us now, Lord, into another time of worship in your word and in prayer. And may you be glorified in our time, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Church, you may be seated.
at this time, we'll be dismissing uh, our children to their classrooms. Christian life is uh, oftentimes uh, Christian life is consists of sort of these competing or conflicting emotions. You know, and we even see that in the scriptures when even Paul himself says that sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's kind of odd, kind of a peculiar statement. How do you rejoice and at the same time be sorrowful? But even Jesus, it tells us in Hebrews, pointing to his being crucified on the cross, and it tells us there in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. As impossible as it sometimes might I said, possible as it is sometimes to sort of comprehend to have these conflicting emotions where you can be sorrowful and rejoicing at the same time. It, it isn't impossible. And so even this morning, there might be, in many of us, today, sort of these conflicting emotions as we, are, as we celebrate and as we rejoice that God has provided uh, for, for Travis and Brooke and given them a new uh, baby boy and that he... Uh, came into the world quickly, uh, praise God, on, uh, for, uh, for Brooke's, on Brooke's behalf. And at the same time, there is a measure of sorrow and grief as well. As we think about Dwight passing away, and while at the same time we can rejoice that his battle with Parkinson's is, is over and he is glorified with Christ, and yet we there's a grief at the same time because we will miss having him with us. So I love the time of prayer that we have on Sunday mornings because it gives us the opportunity to pray for these things and there's always so many things to pray for that we can't pray for all of them in the limited time we have this morning. So let me just be quiet <laughs> so we can bow our heads and go before the Lord and pray to our great God. So let us, let us pray. Jesus, we look to you this morning. We come to you with hearts filled with joy and celebration because you came into the world and you died for us. You gave your life for us. We who are undeserving, Lord, that you would come And save us from our sins. For that we are eternally grateful. It is for this reason. This is the primary reason why we can have joy in every season in life. Because our sins have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. And eternal life has been secured for us in Christ Jesus. And it is in these precious truths that we can find comfort, that we can find even endurance and strength, even through the hardest of trials in this life. 
because Christ Jesus died for us, we can have the confidence today that nothing that happens to us today can touch or lay claim upon our eternal lives because they are forever secured in the powerful hands of Christ Jesus. We also rejoice because new life has been brought into the world. We're thankful, Lord, for Lorenzo Alexander. We thank you, Lord, after many months of waiting that you have brought him into the world. So we rejoice with our dear brother and sister. We are thankful, Lord, for the gift of life. We are thankful, Lord, for your preservation of this precious life. We give you all the glory and honor and praise. We ask, Lord, that you would give Brooke and Travis rest. Help them, Lord, as they now adjust to this little one that you have placed into their hands to care for, to protect, and to raise in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Help them, give them wisdom, Lord, for the coming days. Help them, Lord, to be patient and gracious in all things, in the trials and the challenges as they most likely function with little sleep. Lord, help us also as their family in Christ to come alongside them, to encourage them, to provide for them, to strengthen their hands, and to continue to lift them up through prayer to the throne of grace. Father, we're thankful that our dear brother Dwight, even now, is in paradise. We're thankful, Lord, that he has entered into his eternal rest. We're thankful, Lord, that he now knows a greater measure of joy than we will ever have or can have in this physical life. And while we rejoice, Lord, we also grieve, for he is no longer with us. We grieve with our sister Karen as she misses her beloved husband. So, Lord, so we pray for her and we ask, God, that you might abide with her. Lord, as her shepherd, would you care for her with your gentle hands? Reminder of your great grace and your wonderful love towards her. May your rod and staff comfort her. May you, even in this season of grief, lead her in the path of righteousness for your namesake. Provide your hedge of protection around her mind and heart. We pray, Father, that you might be her greatest source of comfort, that in the moments when she feels lonely, that she might even feel your abiding presence with her. Help us, Lord, to encourage her, to strengthen her, to do all, what we, all that we can to help our dear sister. We pray for, for Ginny, her daughter, as she agonizes, as she grieves. 
Lord, provide your comfort to her as well. Father, we pray that even in this dark hour that she might see the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. That she might find in Jesus a precious Savior and a stronghold and a haven from the storms in life. Father, we trust you for all of these things. We look to you as the one who is the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who has sealed us by the blood of his eternal covenant, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Continue, Lord, to bless us and keep us for your namesake. Encourage those in our church who are going through difficult, a difficult season. We pray for those who need encouragement, for those who need support. We lift them up to you and ask, Father, that you might provide that you might strengthen, that you would cause them to come to you and draw from your eternal well the joy and comfort that they need now in this moment. Lord, and put them in our minds, Lord. Help us to see them and to come alongside them and to encourage them. Father, we trust you for all these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the Psalms. Psalm 28. Psalm 28, verses 1 through Psalm 20, beginning in verse 1. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. 
Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we are here today because you have heard the pleas of your people in calling out for a Savior when we came to acknowledgement of our sins. And you have graciously forgiven us and have called us to yourself and you have possessed us for yourself. And as your possession, Lord, would you continue to be gracious to us and help us as we give thought and consideration to your word. And by your spirit, would you help us to understand? And by your spirit, would you cause your word to bear fruit in our lives? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The background to Psalm 28 is not immediately clear, but I think I can make a pretty good case for what I think is the background of the psalm that generates this, this song or this poem. I think that the passage, one of the predominant themes of the passage is the theme of, distinctu- of distinction. So if you look at verse 2, it says, There hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. So he's crying out to the Lord, begging for the mercy of God. And so the question is, what is he, why is he crying out for mercy? It's not a psalm of confession, because the psalm doesn't give us any particular sin that the psalmist is confessing his sins to the Lord. And they, we don't see that he is taking any steps to, towards repentance because of a known sin that he is guilty of. So then why is he crying out to the Lord for pleas of mercy? And then if you go down to verse 3, the psalmist says, Do not drag me off with the wicked. Don't take me away. Don't drag me away. Don't cast me aside with the wicked. So why does he have this this concern that the Lord might cast him away with the wicked. And he continues to then identify the wicked, explain what is it that makes them wicked. Well, he says they're workers of evil. And then continuing on, these workers of evil speak peace with their neighbors while there is evil in their hearts. So in other words, we have here individuals who perhaps claim to be righteous, claim to believe, claim to be trustworthy. They give this appearance. But then at some point it became visible. It became known that they were not who they said they were. That inwardly there was something else, something entirely different. They were not as trustworthy or perhaps even as Christian 
as one might be led to believe. He continues, give to them according to their work, according to the evil of their deeds. Render them their due reward. We have heard of the term guilty by association. Right, two kids are in the grocery store, right, and then one decides to shoplift, and then the owner sees her in the camera, calls the police, and then they both of them are booked. They're taken away. One has done the shoplifting, the other one, which is there, and perhaps he might be generally a good kid, does what is right. He had no idea that his friend was on the other aisle trying to stuff things into his pocket. But the owner saw them both come in together and engaging together. And they're both taken away. One is guilty by association. It is not that he did anything wrong or that he might even be lawfully convicted. He just happened to be with his friend who did something wrong. And I think this is, might be the a background to the psalm. And he's crying out for mercy, asking the Lord to make a distinction. I am not with the wicked. I was led astray. They give me the impression that they are trustworthy, and now they have shown that they are not trustworthy. So we consider the psalm first. Let us consider that God shows no partiality. Perhaps a psalmist had made a kind of covenant some kind of contract, an oath with an individual or a particular set of individuals to work together to some desired end. And then it became known later on that these individuals were actually pretty shady, perhaps scoundrels. They were not actually righteous. And so now outsiders looking in, looking at the psalmist might say, David, you are guilty. Weren't you engaging with them? Didn't you strike some kind of deal with them? Weren't you? Didn't I see you with them at some time, talking with them, perhaps sitting down with them? It's like two individuals becoming business partners, and then one of the partners decides to cut corners, is shading his business dealings, and doesn't pay his taxes, and then it becomes known. And then, but then both parties are brought into question, right? Because the other one, right, partnered with them, even though the other one did everything right, didn't do anything shady, did what he was supposed to do, had no idea that his business partner was engaging in some shady dealings, but they're both brought into question. Kind of the idea, I think, here concerning the background to the psalm. So he cries out for the Lord, begs that God might distinguish him from these workers of iniquity. Even Jesus, some might say, was guilty by association. The Pharisees had a lot to say when Jesus engaged with sinners, when he would receive sinners and even sit down with sinners. They looked at Jesus disdainfully and said, how is he that he is eating with sinners? Guilt by association. There's no way that he could be the son of God. There's no way that he would allow this woman to wash his feet with this perfume if he knew actually what this woman did, if he actually knew this woman, right? Therefore, he cannot be a prophet. Otherwise, he would not allow that. Guilt by association. He cannot be who he is because he is engaging with sinners. 
But we must understand that there's a difference. We have to carefully consider the difference. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, it tells us there, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has with right, righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The passage there is not talking about, it's not saying that we never befriend those who do not share our faith. It doesn't say that we never engage with unbelievers. It never says that we never engage with people in the workplace. It doesn't mean that we ought to separate from family members who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not saying that at all. But it is concerning this distinction that Christians must bear. And so the concern of that passage is our Christian witness. It is saying that we must not be so engaged with the world that our Christian witness is no longer distinguishable to where one cannot tell, is this a Christian or not? They profess this, but then they do all these things that make them look like they're not Christian. Are they really a Christian? Are they really a believer? There is a significant, distinguishable, noticeable difference between light and darkness. And if the light that you think you have is not distinguishable from the darkness, then you might be in a dangerous position. Or it might be the case that you've never been in the light at all. And it has to go beyond just church attendance. If the only discernible difference between ourselves and someone else who doesn't profess faith or is of the world is that one of us goes to church and the other doesn't, that cannot just simply be enough. It has to be much more than that. And Jesus gives us this caution in Matthew 6.22, this warning. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The warning is that the darkness is so deceitful that one can think that they have light in themselves or that they are in the light or born out of the light that is born again, but in reality, they never have been born again. They never have received the gospel. But the Lord is never confused about the differences between the righteous and the wicked. Even if one should be found guilty by association, though they have done nothing wrong. And how concerned should you be? regarding guilt by association. In one sense, I think we can be proud if we are considered by others or we are judged by others as guilty by association. If, say, we are engaging and having a friendly conversation with somebody who has a different political view than ours, we should be proud in some sense if someone says that we are guilty by association because we are getting down and sitting down with somebody who perhaps has a very different worldview than ours. In one sense, we should be proud 
if someone says that we are guilty by association, if we happen to have someone over for dinner that is engaged in a same-sex relationship, we should be proud if we are judged to be guilty by association, if we are just simply having lunch with somebody who cusses like a sailor. We should be proud in a sense because we would be walking in the same manner of Jesus. For Jesus was found guilty for the same things. But in another sense, we have to be very careful because in our world today, in our society, in our culture, there is a celebration of what is evil and a condemnation of what is good so that there's a confusing of the two. We have to be careful concerning these things. We have to be careful and consider these things. When someone gets to the top of the iTunes music chart who claims to be a Christian and at the same time is a drag queen. We should understand the differences and be careful uh, concerning our Christian distinction. When our society and culture is blurring the different lines that are drawn in the sand. When men are dominating women's sports. When boys are becoming eunuchs. When healthy girls are having a double mastectomy. What we see all around us today is an all-out war against distinction. An attack against distinction is also an attack against the Lord. For the Lord himself makes a declarative statement of distinction when he says in the scriptures that he is holy and that there is none like him. The only way we will really know the difference between the righteous and the wicked is by their fruit. Verse 3, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while there is evil in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. How can we tell the difference between those who honor the Lord and those who do not? We consider their deeds. We consider whether or not their life gives honor to the works of the Lord. Now, it isn't clear if the psalmist is trying to give some kind of distinction between the works of the Lord and the work of his hands, I think he's pointed to the full comprehension of the works of the Lord from creation to redemption. And this timeline would have been redemption through the Exodus, through signs and wonders. But this certainly would also include the work of redemption in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all men everywhere are called to respond to the work of the Lord, the work of creation, and that the Lord holds all men accountable with regards to how they respond to the work 
of the Lord in creation. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The problem is not that man cannot see the invisible God through creation. The problem is that man does not want to see the invisible God through his creation. Therefore, the Lord holds man accountable for his failure to recognize that when the sun rises, when the sun sets, when they look at the mountains, when they see a child being born into the world, that there is a divine creator. Not only that, but also God holds man accountable to his works in redemption. Romans 9.17, which is actually a quotation from the book of Exodus, it says, Therefore the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What is one of the chief reasons why God slaved his people from slavery in Egypt? is so that it's in order for the fame of his own name so that when his name is spread to other peoples who have not and were not part of that salvific work themselves personally, but they hear about it, they might respond to the Lord by looking to him and following him. So similarly, In John 3.16, it tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For God so loved that which was unlovable. For God so loved those who were sinners. For God so loved those who loved their sin that he sent his son into the world so that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. The word world there speaks also of accountability because God sent his son into the world. He holds all men responsible to responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ when they hear so that when one says, I refuse to believe, they are not giving honor to the work of the Lord, and therefore the Lord will render to them their due reward. You will know them by their fruit. The deeds of these imposters in Psalm 28 show that they do not honor the Lord. They give this appearance of righteousness, but then it became clear, as it always does, that they were not of the Lord. They did not honor the Lord. It 
And not only is there a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked, there's also a clear distinction when it comes to outcome. The psalmist says, give to them according to their work. Yeah, I think, again, he's maintaining his distinction. I am not with them. Don't drag me off with them. But Lord, see what they have done and their deception. Give to them according to their work, according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render to them their due reward. Romans 2.6 says that the Lord will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. the psalmist calls God to make a clear distinction. And as I said, we must be clear about this distinction. Right? I want my Christian identity, I want my Christian distinction to be sharp. Like an edge that's grinded with a stone. To have this fine edge. That if you put the distinction as a blade to anything, that'll just slice like butter. First John points to several different things that make Christians distinct from the world and gives us several things by which we maintain the edge of this Christian distinction. To name some of them, according to 1 John, one of the things that make Christians distinct from the world is the fact that they fellowship with Christ and not with the darkness. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with Christ while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Right? We must be distinguishable. Another Christian distinction is that there is an acknowledgement of sin. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? Acknowledgement of sin is what leads to salvation in the first place. But if one cannot acknowledge that they have sin in need of repentance, if one cannot acknowledge that they are in sin and need a Savior to rescue them from their sins, then they have no salvation. And they do not have that Christian distinction. A third Christian distinction, according to 1 John, we see in 1 John 2, 3, which regards or which concerns the keeping of commandments. It says there, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Another Christian distinction is concerning what we love and what we do not love. First John 2.11, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. First John will go on to say, How is it possible for you to love, say you love the Lord and then hate those who belong to Christ? It's impossible to love one and not the other. Another one is concerning the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There must not be a competing loves in our hearts. These foundational, these primary loves, that one primary love has to occupy our hearts. That's what makes it primary. It's a love for God, not a love for the world. I would commend to you a sermon by Vodi Bakum. I believe it's called just Do Not Love the World. You'll find it on YouTube. We preached it at Ligonier Conference back in spring. It is an amazing sermon speaking to this very topic. Another Christian distinction is confession of Jesus. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You cannot have the Son without the Father. You cannot have the Father without the Son. You cannot say that you believe in God and not believe in His Son, for God has made it that in order to come to Him, you must believe in His Son. One last one is repentance, 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This points to the impossibility of the practice of sin without looking for repentance or pursuing repentance. It is impossible for one who has been born of God to continue in sinning without remorse, without sorrow, without looking or aiming or striving for repentance. Anyone who does so, John would say he is a liar and has not actually been born again. The Lord shows no partiality. There's no gaining God's gracious favor through our own deeds or our own efforts. The Lord knows how to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And so we also must be clear about those distinctions as well and be careful about maintaining those distinctions in our own lives. This takes us to secondly, God's heritage in Christ. As we consider deeds, as we consider good works, what is the purpose of good works? Now, many of you, I don't want to spend too much time here, many of you know the difference here or the purpose of good works, the difference between faith and good works and the importance about maintaining a careful distinction here that we're not called to define our salvation or, or ground our salvation in our good works. But it bears stating because we must make sure that we are clear on the differences here. It's the difference between the horse and the carriage. You don't put the carriage before the horse because it's not going to go anywhere. It's a fruitless endeavor. It is vain. It amounts to nothing. But the horse must go before the carriage, and wherever the horse goes, there goes the carriage. So also faith must lead the way. Wherever you see a person of faith, you should also see a trail of good works. King Edward appointed William Wickham to build a stately church, and he accomplished his task. And in one of the, in one of the windows, he had inscribed 
This work made William Wickham. The king called William Wickham to himself and asked him about this inscription and said, what are you trying to say here? Are you saying that you did this all on your own? Are you saying that you, your own hands accomplished this? And William Wickham says, no, that is not at all what I'm trying to communicate, my Lord. I was just simply saying that this work is actually what, what made me. It is this work that made me who I am today, for which he did gain some recognition for the building of this church. Why do I share this story? Because it points to something that is it's generally true, perhaps even more than generally true amongst human beings, is that man oftentimes defines himself by his deeds. Specifically, his good deeds. But the man or woman that God is pleased with is the kind that is defined by their faith and their works prove their faith. The New Testament calls for a distinguishment between the righteous and the, and the wicked. It gives us the distinguishing marks of true religion. Just go to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and being in the marvelous light then comes with these works of light, that those who work in the light do not bear fruit of darkness. So then we must examine ourselves. Are we maintaining this distinction from the world? Are we bearing good fruit? Perfection isn't expected, but when we see bad fruit, are we taking the pruners and cutting them off? And sometimes you need something much bigger. Sometimes the simple one-handed pruners don't work all that well, especially if you've got, got something, if you've got a branch that is much thicker. It's not going to do much work good. So you need something, a, a two-hander to take to whatever it is that's producing the bad fruit and cut it off, right? Are we willing to go to such lengths to remove any bad fruits that may become evident in our lives? The thing about bad fruit is that you don't need to be like in some kind of expert. You don't have to be well-informed as a landscaper or as a gardener to be able to tell the difference between a good fruit and a bad fruit. My wife gets flustered sometimes because buy some fruit at the grocery store, two days later they're already starting to go bad. How can you tell that it's bad? And understandably be slow that she could be frustrated. You paid some money for something that only lasts a couple days. Inflation, come on. We need to have some fruit here that will actually last. But how can you tell the difference? Just look at the fruit. Right, the bad fruit just looks ugly. It's got white stuff on it. It's bruised. You touch it. It feels kind of squishy. Like you don't want to put that thing in your mouth. You can just tell the difference. I have, I don't know, six, seven rose bushes in my house. Some of them came with the house. Some of them I purchased myself. I didn't know how much work it took to maintain a rose bush. It takes a lot of work. You've got to keep pruning them. You've got to keep deadheading them. It was so tedious. I mean, at this point, I, I actually enjoy it. But they are 
a lot of work. And the reason why you got to keep pruning them and cutting off the dead bushes, one, because you know, as you know, flowers don't last very long. And so they die out very quickly, and then what you have is just the dead head. And if you don't cut them off, it just removes. It takes away from some of the, the beauty of the rose bush because you have a bunch of dead stuff on it. Not only that, but cutting off the dead heads promotes new growth. And if you leave the dead heads on there for too long, it actually might encourage the growth of fungus in the rose bush. This is why we must examine ourselves. And if we see any dead heads in our lives, if we see any bad fruits, we must be quick to cut them off. Because otherwise, you cannot promote better health in your Christian walk. The purpose of good works is to give us assurance about ourselves and give us assurance about others that we are indeed born-again believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 actually gives us the permission to judge one another. It says we don't, to judge outsiders, to judge those outside of the church, that's, that's not our jurisdiction. That belongs to the Lord to render the judgment. But when it comes to one another, to anyone who bears the name of Christ, we're given permission to judge one another. This is why we're given the commandment and the permission to even put someone through church discipline when we see or recognize someone who bears the name of Christ and they seem to be bearing bad fruit and we gently call them out on it and they refuse to prune the bad fruit, then the Bible ultimately calls us to separate ourselves from such an individual who professes faith. So 2012, that presidential hopeful Senator Rick Santorum claimed that Barack Obama's policies were of a different theology. And the media came after him, essentially saying, are you saying that Barack Obama isn't a Christian? I mean, he said he was a Christian. Are you saying he's not a Christian? And the senator essentially just said, if he says he's a Christian, he's a Christian. But he's essentially saying that to profess faith is to possess faith. But that's not entirely true, is it? It has to be much more than that. We have to be able to see tangible evidence that this person is who they say they are. And so also with ourselves, looking at our works, looking at our deeds, helps us to examine ourselves and helps us to gain greater confidence that yes, Indeed, I am in Christ. Not because I put the carriage before the horse, but because faith is what drives my good works. I do these things because first and foremost, I love the Lord, and I desire to honor and glorify and please Him. The Lord knows the distinctions and those who are distinctly his, they are his heritage. Verse 6 says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The 
The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am held. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He's a saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. The psalmist went from turning to himself to saying, Lord is my strength, to then saying the Lord is the strength of his people. He's heard the voice, his pleas for mercy. Now the psalmist is confident that he has the Lord's attention, that the Lord has not cast him off with the wicked. He blesses God for his salvation, and he blesses God because he continues to keep his people. The Lord knows how to keep those who are his, who continue to bear that mark of distinction. In Matthew 13, 24, Jesus has a parable there about the good field and that an enemy came and then sowed bad seed among the field and then over time began to produce the land and then there was, behold, there were weeds coming out of the ground with the good fruit. And the question becomes, well, what do we do? And the master of the field says, let them both grow together until the harvest. And when the harvest comes, I will command the reapers and they will make that distinction between the weeds and what's good. And he will separate them out and he will burn the weeds and keep the wheat into the barn. First Peter 2 says that God's people are a people for his own possession. One of the most precious truths of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, we belong to the Lord. The Lord knows who are his. The Lord keeps those who are his. He knows how to distinguish the difference between those who are righteous and wicked, between those who are his and those who claim to be his, but their deeds show differently. There may be many voices in the world, proclaimers of false religion, false theology, false worldviews, false ways of living, and together they might be so loud as to drown out the voices who bear the marks of Christian distinction, but the Lord's ears are sharp enough and keen enough to always be able to distinguish and hear the voices of those who are His. And what's unique to them is that they also bear the divine mark of forgiveness. I'd be remiss if we at least did not touch briefly on the topic of forgiveness, considering the emphasis of deeds and outward appearance not being consistent with an inner reality. Many of these things in this passage should point to the preciousness of divine forgiveness. Divine forgiveness is precious to the Christian life. It is one of the things that makes them separate from the world. Divine forgiveness is like touring a grand palace, seeing the exquisite palace from the inside, seeing its beauty, see all the things that are hung up on the walls. You're there and you feel a sense of awe, but also humility that you get to even step foot into this grand palace, divine forgiveness is being able to enter into the palace of God. 
and in considering one's own unworthiness. Those who bear the divine for, mark of divine forgiveness walk about with them this mark of humility because they recognize that they are undeserving of God's gracious forgiveness. Divine forgiveness is like being condemned as a criminal. being rendered a just verdict and being found that you are guilty, but then coming before the king and being pardoned of all your transgressions and the king doing much more than that, but also inviting you to ride with him in the king's carriage. Those who bear the mark of divine forgiveness not only walk about with a humility, but also with a sense of joy. The joy that comes from knowing that your sins, all of them, have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. And anyone, any culture, or any society that would celebrate sin, call sin good, call sin what is right, call sin what is true, and even beautiful, is actually making a mockery of divine forgiveness and trampling upon it with dirty shoes. Divine forgiveness says, I am in sin and I need a Savior. But when we celebrate sin, we're saying that there is no need of divine forgiveness. Forgiveness highlights the glory of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. In the work of Jesus, right, we see so much of the person of Jesus Christ. We see his mercy, his kindness, his love, his forgiveness. And it is this forgiveness that secures us in Christ Jesus as his prized possession. Though we may be mocked or ridiculed or slandered or even ostracized in this world because we maintain our Christian distinction, let us be unashamed of bearing the marks of divine forgiveness. Because not only are these the marks that distinguish us from the rest of the world, but they also assure us of God's divine love. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, you are holy. There is no other God like you, and there is no God besides you. Lord, it is hard for us and our finite minds to comprehend how you maintain your separateness and your holiness, and at the same time come to us, come into our world, robed also with humanity. becoming like us in every way and yet without sin, so that you can be a faithful and merciful Savior towards us, so that you can call us to yourself, so that we can be, be your prized possession. We are your possession. We are your heritage. Lord, help us to maintain this witness, this distinction, because this is what gives us the assurance that we are indeed your prized possession. Help us 
to walk in this distinction, not as an effort to earn your favor, but because we have already received your favor through the gospel of Jesus Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us transition to taking communion together. If you haven't done so yet, there are these small cups in the back table. Feel free right now to take, to go back there and grab one of these. The Lord calls us to come together. He calls his family, his prized possession to come together. And when we meet, to take this family meal together. This is a reminder to us that we have indeed been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. The bread represents the bruised body of Christ, bruised on our behalf, taking on the punishment that our sins deserve. The cup represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ, shed so that in Christ Jesus we may be secured by an eternal covenant, an unbreakable covenant. This is a reminder to us that we belong to Jesus Christ. So whether you are here this morning as as a member, or if you are not a member, if you are here for your first time, if you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if your life is characterized by the repentance that God requires, turning away from sin and continuing to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have also received baptism, then you are invited to take this meal as a brother or sister in Christ Jesus. But if you have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are still outside of Christ. You have yet to come to belong to Jesus Christ as his prized possession, as his family member. But we would ask that you would consider these things this morning. Consider that Christ Jesus came into the world to die for sinners so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Come into the household of the Lord. Come into the family of Christ Jesus by placing your faith upon him, trusting him as your Lord and Savior. Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will belong to the Lord and you will have an eternal place in the paradise and the palace of the Lord. So as we take this meal, let's take a moment to pause and reflect, regardless what your week has been like. If you come this morning, perhaps with a guilty conscience, perhaps the Lord has pricked you of something this morning, something you need to repent of. Perhaps there's a particular fruit in your life that you need to prune. Come to the Lord Jesus and take this meal with confidence. You do not need to be perfect in order to take this meal. If you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ has already paid the penalty for all your sins, even the sins that you might bear guilt of this morning. Take it in confidence and take it with the intention of repenting of your sins and continuing to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment to pause, reflect on the gospel of Jesus Christ, confess your sins for the Lord and trust in his forgiveness.
we're going to take the bread and the cup and we will do it in the same manner that we have done it before. So we take this, and we do not believe that this actually becomes the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ, but they are representative elements that point us to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So even as we take this meal together, believe wholeheartedly that Christ Jesus died for your sins. So as we take the bread together, affirm audibly, loudly, verbally, that this is the body of Christ bruised for me, that this is the blood of Jesus shed for me. So let us take bread first. Let us take it together, brothers and sisters, the body of Christ Jesus bruised for you. The body of Christ bruised for me. same way, let us take the cup. Dear saints, is the blood of Jesus shed for you. The blood of Jesus shed for me. Jesus, we thank you for giving us this meal, which bears a mark of our distinction in Christ Jesus. You call us to take this until the day that you return. So we take this with anticipation, looking forward to your return, to the day when you will separate the wheat from the chaff and you will call your prized possession to yourself. Let us wait eagerly for that day, and as we wait, let us faithfully, through the power and the strength of your Holy Spirit, to bear the marks of our Christian distinction, even in a world that seeks to blur the lines of distinction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand. Sing one more song together in response of today's word. Amen. This last song is called Forgiveness, or Forgiven. Um. I just ask that we may meditate on these words uh, as we sing them unto the Lord. Amen. Forgive us for our pride when our faith becomes a show and dress in righteous deeds to hide all the stains below. And we have judged your sons and daughters for the sin that is our own. And may we now forgive each other and lay down our stones. Forgiven, forgiven, through the blood of Christ we are forgiven. Lord, forgive us for our love of the things we wish to own. We forsake the feast above for all the crumbs below. Though you've made us sons and daughters, we do not the world disown. May we find our greatest treasure is in you alone. 
faithful. You are full of grace and you are merciful. But we, Lord, on the other hand, fall short of these things often. So, Lord, we need your forgiveness. Lord, may we also examine ourselves, Lord, in in order that we may not deceive ourselves. As we heard today in the sermon, Lord, may may you help us, Lord, help us, Father, to discern what is good and what is wicked, what is not of the Lord. Give us, Lord, the assurance of in whom we stand in order to be the light among the darkness, God. Humble, humble us, Father, that we may be unashamed of your love for us in Christ through the gospel that has brought us salvation. It is in Christ in whom we stand. May we walk in faith, God, as you lead your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Word of God says, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power. It might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Church, God bless you. You're dismissed. Amen.